0: Take your Bibles this evening, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Last week, we left Paul and Barnabas in Antioch of Pisidia, where we examined the sermon that he gave in the synagogue, preaching the gospel, the good news, the glad tidings to the Jews, to the Gentiles there. Since then, quite a lot has happened in the life of the early church. Paul and Barnabas have finished that first missionary journey. We get to Acts chapter 15 and the Jerusalem council gets together to try to answer the question, what do we do with all of these Gentiles as they're getting saved. How much of the Jewish law do they need to follow in order to be Christian? And they come to their conclusion, send a letter off with Paul uh, to get that delivered to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go on to their second missionary journey, and Barnabas wants to take with them one by the name of John Mark, and Paul's like, wait a second, he left us last time. I don't think we should bring him. And Paul and Barnabas amicably split ways. Oftentimes when there's conflict, if you're like me, we want to know, well, who was right? Was Paul right or was Barnabas right? And the answer was yes, They were both right. John Mark did need some more time, and you get to the end of Paul's life. He's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says, send John Mark because he's now profitable. Barnabas was right to give him more time, but Paul was right to say, let's go a different direction. So Paul is now on this missionary journey with Silas. They've started in Lystra, where they pick up a young man by the name of Timothy, who is going to latch on and become a follower of what Paul is teaching and really go from being a student of Paul's to one whom Paul is willing to send out to different locations to check on things because Timothy, we're told, has a heart that is just like Paul's. Paul has received the Macedonian call, and so he and Silas and Timothy and Luke go over into Macedonia. They reach the city of Philippi, where, as we read, they get thrown into, at least Paul and Silas get thrown into prison unjustly, and we see them singing and praying at midnight, and the walls uh, fall down because of an earthquake, and Paul and Silas are able to give the gospel to the jailer. He and his household are saved, and The next day, Paul is kind of quietly ushered out of the city of Philippi. They get to Thessalonica, where Paul again is giving the gospel in the synagogues. Probably a message very similar to what we looked at last week. The Jews in Thessalonica grew jealous, so they chased him out. They get to Berea, and we read that the people in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica, because they actually said, okay, here's what Paul is saying, let's look in the Scriptures. Let's see if what he's saying is actually true. Then the Jews from Thessalonica catch up to him in Berea, and Paul is again sent out of Berea. He leaves Timothy and Silas there, and when we get to our text this evening, he's continued to Athens alone. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, we see that Paul is not simply a tourist. While Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the whole city or the city wholly given to idolatry. Paul does as his norm is. He goes to the synagogue and he preaches in the synagogue. Luke doesn't record that message for us because that's not his purpose for what he's recording of Paul in Athens. And the rest of the week, Paul is in the marketplace. He's out where the people are, giving the gospel to them, teaching things to them. And as he's out and about, He's seeing the idolatry around him. He's seeing the depravity in the city. And the scriptures tell us that his spirit was stirred within him. And this word stirred is the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, talking about charity not easily being provoked. So what does that mean? Paul is seeing the idolatry, he's seeing the moral deprivation in the city, and Saul is getting upset. He's getting frustrated, he's getting irritated, he's getting troubled. So what does he do? He boycotts. He starts a social media campaign blasting these morally depraved individuals for acting morally depraved. He sets up a little corner booth and waits for people to come talk to him. I'm sorry, that's what 21st century Christians do. That's not what Paul does. Paul's spirit is stirred within him. He sees the depravity. He's getting upset. And that spirit stirring within him moves Paul to action. And not the action of running and hiding, not the action of getting upset and condemning, but Paul is stirred to action to give the gospel to those individuals who are lost and condemned. Because he's not just upset, he realizes, and as we'll come to in this message, that God has a day appointed for judgment. And these individuals are condemned on their way to hell, if they don't hear the gospel and respond. And that's what Paul does. And this message that Paul or Luke records for us with Paul, this is really the first message that's given to individuals who don't have what we would consider a biblical background. Cornelius was a Gentile, but he was a God-fearer. He understood Judaism to a degree. The Ethiopian eunuch understood Judaism to a degree. He was a proselyte. But now we see Paul, and he comes to a culture that has absolutely no idea who God is. And as we look around our country... It is increasingly more and more that we are coming across people who have no background in the scriptures. Who have no understanding of who God is or what the Bible is. And this is a huge shift from the way that it used to be. In the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, you at least had a population of individuals who understood morality. But you look at the country today, and that is just gone. And as Paul is giving the gospel in this chapter, I hope that we can take away some ideas that he has as we go out into a culture that does not have an idea of who God is. In verse 17, we read, he disputed In the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. Today, that word disputed carries a negative connotation, the idea that somebody's just always arguing. The word really just means he reasons with people. So he's in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, reasoning with the Jews how that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And the rest of the week, he's in the marketplace Reasoning with individuals who have no background in the scriptures, how that Jesus is the Messiah. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or if you're not. Paul went where the people were. And certain, verse 18, of the philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Other, some... He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And these two groups of philosophers are going to play a lot into this message. Because as Paul is before the Areopagus in this chapter, some of the things that he's saying is going to resonate with some of the beliefs of these philosophers. The Epicureans believed that there was no afterlife. They believed there was a God, but you really couldn't know him. The Stoics, on the other hand, were very pantheistic. God is in everything. And they held firmly to reason and ethics. And here's Paul, and he's preaching this strange God. These new ideas, they call him a babbler, literally a seed picker, you know, just like a bird that you would see out just picking up seeds or breadcrumbs. And then when you get too close to the bird, he grabs what he can in his beak and he flies off and some of those crumbs scatter. That's really what they're thinking of Paulo. He's just taking bits and pieces of philosophy from various areas, grabbing what he can, and then just kind of spreading it as he goes. They accused him of being putting forward strange gods. That he was trying to introduce foreign deities into the Greek pantheon, based on the false assumption that you have the god Jesus... And the feminine counterpart of Jesus, Anastasis or Resurrection, a personification of the afterlife. Which, in our mindset, how can the resurrection be a deity? But in the Greek mindset, that was not uncommon. Zeus, the main Greek god, had Themis, order, and Metis, wisdom. With him all the time. Zeus's daughter was Justice. Athena, the goddess of war, carried with her Nike, the god of victory, with her. Ares had Phobos and Deimos, fear and terror, with him. These personifications of abstract concepts. So you have, okay, this new god, Jesus, and the personification of the afterlife, Anastasis. The resurrection. So they took him, verse 19, and they brought him into the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is, for thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell Or to hear something new. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and he proceeds to give his message. The immediate setting for this is within the Areopagus. Okay, what is that? That's the supreme governing council of Athens who had the responsibility for deciding answers to religious questions. So, it's not like you just have a bunch of random people saying, Hey, Paul, can you tell us more? He's brought before the city council to say, for them to determine, Are these gods that you're talking about something that we can accept into our multitude of gods that we already worship? Can we just absorb them in? And Luke has that parenthetical, verse 21. All the Athenians and strangers spent their time, nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. It's not an accusation of the Athenians just wasting their time listening to or discussing the latest fads, but rather Luke is explaining to someone who may not understand the Areopagus, which 2,000 years later we really don't, but it's an explanation why they wanted to hear Paul's new teaching, because they get a lot of it. And they have to figure out which ones are acceptable and which ones aren't. But in reality, what we'll see, Paul is demonstrating the identity of the unknown God as something that is far from new. And Paul, verse 22, is standing in the midst of them, which was the position of the speaker in this official setting. And for this setting, unlike in the synagogues where the scripture would be read, and then, oh, hey, Paul, can you tell us what these verses mean? For this, Paul would have been given a day to go home and, in the Greek custom, prepare his speech, memorize it, and then come back the next day to give it, which is what he does. So let's look at his challenge to them this evening. He addresses them, ye men of Athens, in verse 22, Not just that they were men from the city of Athens, but more importantly that they are men who are representing the people of Athens. So it's not that you're just people here, but you're in a position of authority. And following the Greek oratory traditions, he gives an opening commendation. I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Now, we read that in our English, and in our English mindset, we're like, okay, they're too superstitious. Are they, like, looking for ghosts that are going to jump out from behind doorways? You know, they don't walk under ladders, they don't break glass, they don't keep black cats. You know, is that the type of superstition? No. It just means that they fear the gods, little g-gods. Positively, when it's used, it focuses on the piousness or the religiousness of an individual. Knowing what we know of Paul, because he is speaking before the city council, more than likely he is not addressing them as being scaredy cats, but as recognizing you are seeking something in all of your religion. And I recognize this. You are religious in every way. In fact, you are religious in every way because, verse 23, as I passed by and I beheld your devotions, you know, as I was coming, walking through the city, I saw all of your altars. I saw all of the temples that you have set up for these different gods. In fact, he says, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him I declare unto you. And Paul is going throughout this challenge, this sermon, and he's going to be taking ideas and concepts that these individuals understand the Stoics and the Epicureans, the Greek mindset. He's going to be finding areas where there are similarities. Finding areas where you think this, I think this, but let me tell you why I think this, because it's a different reason than why you think this, and my reason is better because it's based off of truth. And we'll see in multiple settings different concepts that the Stoics will agree with for some reasons, or the Epicureans will agree with for other reasons, and Paul states it, but Paul's saying... I don't agree with it because it's a philosophical argument. I agree with it because it's in the Bible, which is the standard of truth. And whereas the Greeks are going to be coming at this purely philosophically, Paul is saying, yes, philosophy is there, but I'm basing my philosophy on what is truth. And we live in a society where everyone's philosophy is doing that which is right in their own eyes. Where people worship the God of self. As we'll see, that Paul points out, people are seeking for something. People are searching for answers. They're searching in the wrong places. And Paul points that out and he points them to the right place. I'm going to declare this unknown God. To you, he's stating the theme and the argument of his speech by making a personal observation and a very succinct assertion, pointing out all of the objects of worship that he has seen, indicating the religiousness of his audience. Of particular note, this altar to the unknown God. According to local legend, there was a plague in Athens, in which no sacrifices successfully pleased the gods. Epimenides of Crete counseled them to release a flock of sheep on the top of the Areopagus, and wherever the sheep stopped and sat down, the altars were there erected to unnamed gods, and the city was spared from the plague. So there's a god that we don't know about who was satisfied by this So let's build an altar to this unknown God. And Paul is saying, I'm not introducing a foreign deity. I'm not introducing a foreign idea, but I am going to take this opportunity to teach and to explain to these individuals who don't know God that he is already present in the worship of that city. He's not saying that they are correct in their understanding. He's not saying that they were closet Christians, as some would try to point out. Well, they're already worshiping God, so they would have made it to heaven eventually. He's not saying that they would have been able to, by their own thoughts, come to an understanding of truth. But Paul is setting the stage to distinguish between a philosophical religion and biblical revelation. Which he gets into in the following verses as he discusses the truth about God the creator, the human race, and the presence of God. Paul starts off by describing God as the creator. God, verse 24, that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth. God is the one who made the universe, proclaiming the one God who created everything. Everything that exists, whether it be material or immaterial, whether it be animate or inanimate, whether it be terrestrial or celestial, God made it all. And because God is the one who created everything, it is only fitting that he is also then the Lord of everything. Because he made it, he owns it. You know, and we have this mindset even today. If you work on something, you work on a project, you've made something. You know, this is mine. Why? Because I made it. And you can't touch it. Well, God, because he made everything, he is the Lord of everything. The Stoics followed a fixed order in their discussions of reality. Their order went along the following lines. First, prove that the gods exist, then discuss their nature, show how they order the world, and then explain how they care for mankind. And Paul, in this challenge, in this sermon, is following that logical order. Verse 24, God is the creator, so God exists because he created, so his nature is then that he is the Lord of everything. As Lord, verse 25, he gives to human beings life and everything that they need. And then verse 26, he cares for people as he determines the times of their existence and the boundaries of their habitations. But in contrast to the Stoics merely discussing philosophically, Paul is not simply proclaiming the philosophy of a divine reality as they would have been. Rather, he is taking the opportunity again to teach the reality of the one true God of the Scriptures. This God who made everything... So he created it all. He's the Lord of it all. Secondly, Paul tells them that he does not live in man-made temples. He dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Because he created everything, he doesn't live in things that we can make. The infinitely powerful creator of the universe cannot be confined by the walls and columns created by finite man. Whether those walls be physical Or mental so God is not confined to the walls of this building neither is God confined to what my brain wants him to be because he's infinite the Stoics also believed and they would have agreed with Paul yes gods don't live in the temples The Epicureans also rejected the superstitions of their contemporaries, and they would often mock the worship practices performed in the temples. So Paul's audience would have been like, yes, you're right. Gods don't live in man-made temples. So we come to the question, you know, is Paul just seeking grounds of agreement with them? Trying to find some way that we can all just get along, and your God is my God, and let's all be happy together. No, Paul's not seeking that. People who are wrong can still be right. Oftentimes, we don't want to agree with that. You know, if somebody is wrong, we think that they're never going to be right, but sometimes people who are wrong can actually come to correct conclusions. No, the broken clock is right twice a day. The blind squirrel sometimes finds a nut. People who are wrong in the majority of their life can still come to some aspects of truth. Paul's conviction does not come from philosophy, okay? You can't argue through the fact that, okay, these gods who are more powerful than mankind... Therefore, they can't live in our temples. But Paul is coming at it from this is what God's word says. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. Going back to Isaiah 66, you look at God and his power. How are we going to take that infinite God and confine him to a temple? Not because philosophy tells me that, but God's word tells me that. Paul doesn't just avoid the Bible because his audience is ignorant of it. Instead, it is his source of authority where we may have some grounds of agreement because philosophy gets us there, as believers, we have the authority in God's word that we can cling to and ought to. Not only did God create everything and is therefore the Lord of everything, not only does he not dwell in a temple that we can make, Paul also declares in verse 25 that God does not need sacrifices. Neither is worshipped with men's hands, As though he needed anything. God does not need sacrifices. The Stoics would agree heartily that God does not need to be served. Seneca, one of the chief brains of the Stoic mentality, says he himself, referring to the gods, does service to mankind. So the gods don't need our help because the gods exist to serve us. The Epicureans also would have agreed that gods do not need to be served, as their greatest statesman Euripides said, for God, if indeed God he be, is in need of nothing. So Paul's audience would have been like, yes, God doesn't need to be sacrificed to. God doesn't need to be worshipped by man's hands. But again, Paul's critique of pagan worship isn't from philosophy, it's from the scripture, Psalm chapter 50, verses 10 through 12, God says, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountain and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, God says, if I needed anything, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine in the fullness thereof. God doesn't need our worship. He wants it. But he doesn't need it. If he was not worshipped, he would still be God. But not only that, God sustains and gives life. Seeing he, God doesn't need worship because he giveth life to all and breath and all things. God is the one who sustains life. God not only created the world, but he continues to sustain it. He continues to give life. The Stoics would have agreed, again, their philosophy saying that the right idea of God includes having to regard a God as one who possesses all things and gives all things without price. But Paul isn't saying, hey, I know what you Stoics believe, so that's why I'm saying this. Paul's coming from it from the source of authority, God's word. Genesis chapter 2, we see God breathing into Adam the breath of life. Or in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5, in describing God, he's referred to as the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. God is the one who sustains our life. So if you were to take away God, if there was no God, our life would be gone. If he was not sustaining us, we would be dead. The implication with this statement by Paul is that mankind can only understand the nature and identity of the human race only when we understand our fundamental dependence on our God. God. And the corollary or that which follows is that if we truly understand our God, that is going to cause us to appropriately worship him. Not only does Paul begin by proclaiming God as the creator, but he narrows it down following that Greek line of logic. He's the creator of the human race. So how does this God that he is proclaiming line up with, and care for humans. Verses 26 and 27, Paul seeks to advance three simple points. The first point being that the human race is one due to its origins. Verse 26, And God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. Very simply put, there is one human race. There are many tribal groups, there are many ethnic groups, many language groups, but all of those tribes and ethnicities that we have today all stem from one man. All humans have a common ancestor, and it's not Lucy. It's not a Neanderthal. I was going to say it's not Cro-Magnon man, but that's not the politically correct term for him anymore. It's not the anatomically modern human, because Cro-Magnon man doesn't fit, I guess. We have one common ancestor, that is Adam. And this idea that all of mankind is one race doesn't fit anywhere within the Epicurean or Stoic discussions. In Greek religion, and Roman mythology, there is no idea or concept of a common ancestor. It starts with you have all these people groups and the Greeks, the Greeks are the best, or the Romans, the Romans are the best. There's no common ancestor. But again, where is Paul at? At the Areopagus. What was their purpose? They were to decide on the religious questions so they probably would have understand understood since there was a synagogue in athens okay paul is bringing in this jewish god that is worshipped by some in the city so making a connection between the unknown god and the god of the jews then going back to the jewish mythology of adam god not only created the human race and the human race is one due to its origins but secondly The human race was created to inhabit the earth in its diversity. God hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Or in other words, God created mankind to inhabit the earth. The fixed times, the times appointed, were the times of history in which various people groups lived. So when you look into history and you see the Egyptian empire... When did they have their success? When did they have all of their glory? The times that God allowed for it. The Babylonian Empire, when did they have their rise? When did they have their falls? According to the time that God appointed. The Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. Do we want to fast forward into modern American history? When is America going to end at the time that God's appointed for it? God has appointed the times beforehand and the bounds of their habitation, the boundaries are the political boundaries, where they lived. So Paul is asserting that the rise and fall of empires throughout history is set by God. And the Stoics in the audience listening would have said, yes, the gods rule the world by their providence. The gods determine who lives where and when, and they would have agreed with that. But again, Paul's not coming from Stoic philosophy. He's coming from the biblical truth. If you're in Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 17, this matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream where he sees this tree and all the birds are taking comfort in the tree and the tree gets cut down. And he wants to know what does this mean? And the intent of the dream is that he is that tree. Because of his pride, he's going to get cut down until he realizes that great Babylon, which he built, was not because of him but because there's a God in heaven who appointed him to have it. And when we see him saying a few months later, is this not great Babylon which I have built, a voice fell from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. They shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times seven years shall pass over thee until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And at the end of the seven years when Nebuchadnezzar's reasoning is restored, what does he say? That God is the one whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. All the inhabitants of the earth are as nothing. He, God, does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, none can stay his hand or say unto him, God, what are you doing? God has set where we live and the, when these different people groups were. But not only that, Paul declares third that the human race was created to be in fellowship with God. Verse 27, that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us, God made us, God made mankind for a purpose, and that purpose is to seek him. And that word seek implies that human beings don't know God or know where to find him, but there is a desire within us to have fellowship with God. As we saw in Sunday school this morning, all human beings in them have a seed of religion, a need to worship something or someone, and that's either going to lead to idolatry and the worship of self, or to piety and the love and worship of God. And Paul deals with this a little bit in more detail in Romans chapter 1, where he talks about the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness in, of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because, verse 19, that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they were w- without excuse, Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. But rather, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So what does God do? He gives them over to this reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, and we're like, yeah, those are bad things. Paul, preach against those, but also full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, despiteful, proud, boasters, disobedient to parents. Oh, Paul, those are things that we struggle with. Don't talk about those. Definitely hit on the bad things, but don't talk about those things because those hit home. But what Paul is declaring to the council in Athens and what we can declare firmly to those in the world who claim that there is no God, that within each one of us, God has placed a desire to seek something to worship. And what Paul is doing is he is taking the opportunity to teach these individuals who the one who is worthy of that worship is. Again, he doesn't yell at them for being dumb. He doesn't yell at them for living in sin. He doesn't chastise them. His spirit is stirred up within him and he's moved with compassion. And he takes the opportunity to teach the ignorant. To teach them who God is. All human beings have that desire for God. He put within us the desire to seek the Lord. If happily they may feel after him and find him. And finding indicates that there is a possibility of success in one's search for God. We can find God if we try hard enough, but look at where Paul puts that you can find God. Within the phrase of, if you search or might feel after him in the picture there would be of a blind individual groping around in the darkness to try to find something. You know, if we were to suddenly lose power and it would be pitch black in here and all of our devices would power down and it's just pure darkness, what would we be able to find? Our toes might find a corner, but that's not what we're looking for. Several years ago, my wife and I took an anniversary trip to Hannibal, Missouri, where we went and toured the caves that inspired Mark Twain to write or Samuel Clemens to write Mark Twain and Tom Sawyer and we're in the caves and our tour guide was a young boy very well could have been Tom Sawyer and we're in there and he's explaining this about this and this about this and all of a sudden he just reaches behind a rock and flips a switch lights go out it is pitch black It's like you put your hand in front of your face, and you can't even see it. Yet we can find God if we can maybe grope around. Unless God is revealed to us, that search that we have is going to be unfruitful. So what is Paul doing? He's helping these individuals find the one for whom they are seeking. God is not far from his creation. The idea that God is still present with his creation. God is sustaining us. The Stoics would have agreed. Their philosophy, God is near you, with you, and in you. But again, Paul isn't coming at this from philosophy. Paul's coming at this from the scripture. Psalm 145, 18, The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. And Paul describes the God, the creator, the one on whom all human life depends. He makes two simple statements. In verse 28, human existence is rooted in God. In him we live and move and have our being. We're physically alive. We're not stationary. We exist. Those within the Areopagus would have understood this in a pantheistic sense, And then Paul does go and quote directly from Aratus of Soli and Sicilia, or Sicilia, to emphasize that human beings are not only close to God, but related to him as kin, for we are also his offspring. Again, Paul is not accommodating the philosophical convictions of his audience, but rather he is carefully choosing a statement that ties back to verse 26, the common ancestor, the one race. And again, Paul coming at it from understanding the scripture. If we look in Luke chapter 3, we see the genealogy of Christ. It goes all the way back to Seth, which is the son of Adam, which is the son of God. Paul's integration of the ignorant knowledge of the poet into the truth of revelation is possible only based on the basis of creation. Now, one thing that we have not seen at all in this speech, and we won't, not once does Paul mention the name of Jesus. Paul is giving the gospel without actually giving the name of Jesus. In verse 29, he tells them, he reminds us that human worship must not confuse God with images. Since we have been brought into existence by God, we cannot bring a God into existence by our skill or imagination. And then Paul comes to his conclusion. The truth about God, the creator who commands all to repent. Paul's conclusion doesn't actually answer the question that was asked of him. Are you introducing new gods to us? Instead, his conclusion is going to end with a rather interesting conclusion. God created all of us. God is the Lord of all of us. God is in charge. God sustains us. And because of who God is, repent. Wait, what? Paul doesn't take the time to explain to them or try to convince them that they're sinners. Paul doesn't try to convince them that Jesus died for their sins, the good news of the gospel. He just simply declares, there is a God that we are accountable to, so you better repent. He starts off in verse 30, revealing that the times of this ignorance, God winked at. Even though the God, the creator, has made the heaven and the earth... Even though he has created all living human beings, mankind has worshipped other things. We've gone and we've worshipped images of our own creation. Making and worshipping these new gods, Paul is saying, is ignorance. And in times past, God has winked at it. Or God has overlooked it. What does that mean? God hasn't judged it right then and there. Paul's not saying that God will give a free pass to those who have never heard the gospel. But rather, God has at this point disregarded the consequences of it. God is demonstrating his mercy. We see that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And how are they going to come to repentance? Because we need to tell them. We need to share the good news. God commands all people everywhere to repent. God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And the call to repent signals that their ignorance of the true God actually establishes their guilt before him. The fact, simple fact that we don't know God, that we don't worship God correctly, makes us guilty before him. So what do we need to do? Repent of that ignorance and turn to the one true God. Man is guilty of ignorance of God and must therefore repent. Why should we repent? Because Paul declares God will judge the world. He tells us that God has already determined the day of judgment. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, God has already determined when that end time is going to be. God has already determined when the clock is going to stop for mankind to have the opportunity to repent of their ignorance and turn to him. Because that date has been set, the time that we have to respond in repentance is short. So what are we doing with those around us? Do we recognize that those outside of this church, outside of these walls, who are worshiping ignorantly their own gods are going to be judged for that, and the time that they have to repent is coming to an end and sharing the gospel with them. God has appointed the judge by that man, which man, well, we know that he's referring to Jesus, whom he has ordained. God has already designated the one who will judge, avoiding the impression that Paul is proclaiming a foreign deity, but also affirming the humanity of Jesus. We may ask the question, well, what gives this man the right to judge? Well, he's qualified to judge because of his resurrection from the dead. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. This man, Jesus, is qualified to be the final judge. Here's why he's not dead anymore. God raised him. God has the power over the dead, the authority to appoint the judge, and one who has been raised from the dead can legitimately receive the authority to judge the living and the dead. And that's Paul's message. What are the results? Again, it's mixed. Some mock. When Paul starts talking about the resurrection, that is a completely foreign concept to the Greek mythology. A bodily resurrection, Paul, you're crazy. Others desired further discussion, and some clave to him. Some, like, okay, Paul, I repent. I no longer want to be ignorant in my knowledge of God. I'm going to repent and turn to the true God. And we see Paul just leaves the Areopagus. In other words, the city council really didn't find any reason to say what he's preaching is wrong. So they just kind of let him go. So what are the takeaways? If you're unsaved, it's very simple. There is a day of judgment that has already been appointed. If you're listening to this message, you still have time to repent you have time to turn from your ignorance of God and turn to the knowable God for the saved. What is our response to those living in wickedness out of ignorance? Is our spirit provoked? Does that wickedness, does sin stir us up? Or do we have a laissez-faire mindset? "Eh, That's not me, I don't have to worry about it. It's them. What is our response to those who are living in the wickedness? To those who have only been taught to worship the God of self? To those who have only been taught to worship the God of choice or to worship the God of whatever? Who are trying to find God but are doing so ignorantly? They're groping in darkness Seeking to find him and they can't, but they're living the life the only way they know how. Do we see them for who they are? Individuals that are going to face God's wrath at that time appointed. Do we go into our little corner and wait for someone to come talk to us? Do we gather with others and... Talk negatively about these individuals who are full of sin? Or do we do like Paul, recognizing the day of judgment is appointed for them? Do we have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire? The world around us is full of wickedness, yes. But how do we respond to it? Do we see them as individuals who are living in ignorance of God? So let's give them the God. Let's introduce them to the one who they are seeking for. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. God, we do live in a world, in a society, whichever more is rejecting you, worshiping gods of their own manufacturing, worshiping gods of their own creation, worshiping in ignorance. God, too often it is easier to criticize and to be standoffish towards those individuals, but I pray that you would give us a vision for them as Paul had. That we would seek to share with them the truth of your word. Areas where we can find agreement to make Connection and a relationship with them, but to teach them the truth of you and your son. May we be a church that reveals the one true God to a community surrounding us. Lord, if there is one who has not put their faith in you, who is still worshiping gods in their ignorance, may they, today be the day that they repent and turn to you. We pray these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ.